Okay, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 29. 1 Samuel chapter 29. And 1 Samuel chapter 29 actually comes before most of 1 Samuel 28, but it was 1 Samuel 28 was looking at Saul. Now we're back to looking at David, so the writer has to kind of skip around a little bit. So this is uh, a day or two before uh, uh, what, some of the things that had transpired in chapter 28 of 1 Samuel. So now chapter 29 of 1 Samuel, reading from verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, while the Israelites were camping by the spring which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were proceeding on in the rear with Ashish. And so, let's, let's just stop there a minute. Let's just define and think about who the Philistines were. The Philistines actually were not native to that land. The Philistines had migrated to that land. The Philistines were from Crete. And, in fact, the, the Scriptures have several verses about the Philistines and you can read these on your own, but let me just mention that the Crete is sometimes referred to as Kaktor uh, in the scriptures, and they were called the Cherethites. So often the Philistines were referred to as the Cherethites, just as the Israelis were referred to as Hebrews by the Gentiles. That was the typical Hebrew name, that, that was the typical Gentile way of referring to, to, to the Israelis was Hebrews, and often uh, Jews... Israelites would refer to themselves as Hebrews when they were speaking to Gentiles. This is the way Joseph, for example, was referred to. And Joseph referred to himself as a Hebrew when in the land of Egypt. The, the, the uh, Philistines were called the Cherethites. And that's in Amos chapter 9, verse 7, Ezekiel 25:16, and Zephaniah 2, 5. Uh, but later on, these Philistines, which are called the Cherethites, many of them joined on in David's army later on when David becomes king. And let's just look at a couple of verses on that. If you look at 2 Samuel, so we're in 1 Samuel, keep your finger there, but look in 2 Samuel chapter 8. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 18 says, <clears throat> Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. So, Benaiah, remember, Benaiah was one of David's great mighty men. And Benaiah was over the Cherethites, or the Philistines that had defected to David's army. There's other verses about this. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, it talks again about the Cherethites. And uh, in verse 18, chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, verse 18, it says, Now all his servants passed on beside him, all the Cherethites, and all the, the Pelethites, and the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath, passed on before the king. So this is many years later, and still, many of these Philistines or Cherethites had joined in with David's army. So there was a lot of, of intermingling between the two groups, but you'll see many references to the Cherethites, also in 2 Samuel 20, verse 7, 20 verse 23 and 1 Kings 1 38 and, and uh, 44 mentions of the Cherethites. So these are who the Philistines were. They lived primarily on the, on the east side by, by the Mediterranean Sea of where, where Israel is now. And, uh, uh, so, so, and, and many of their descendants are still right there. 
Verse 3 of chapter 29. 1 Samuel chapter 29, verse 3. Then the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Asha said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or rather these years, and I have found no fault in him from the day he deserted to me to this day? But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Make the man go back, that he may return to his place where you have assigned him. And do not let him come down to the battle with us, or to the battle, or in the battle he may become our adversary. For what could this man make himself acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men? Is this not David of whom they sing in the dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousand, and David his ten thousands? Okay, so remember, David had, had gone to Gath, fleeing from King Saul, who was trying to kill him. He had 600 men with him. He realized in Gath probably wasn't the best place for him, because remember, he had slain Goliath from Gath, and the people still remember this. And on one other instance, again, he had escaped just barely with his life when they recognized him. <clears throat> but nonetheless, he went to Gath again. So again, he turned back to a location that was not the land of Israel. He turned back to a location. It is analogous to a believer going back into the world and saying, oh, there's, it's, there's more protection for me there. And so David had this lapse in faith. During this 14-month period, we're told he was there for 14 months. So, in fact, he had asked Gosh, uh, uh, Ashish, the king, would you let us leave Gath and just live in one of your southern cities? And he lived in Ziklag. And so that was the city that he had lived in with his men. But he still served Ashish. He would go on raids. He lied to Ashish. He would tell Ashish, we've been on raids, raiding the southern portion of Israel, southern portion of Judah. But that was a lie. It says that David was actually raiding some of the southern portions of some of the other people groups that were there. He would take some of the spoil, bring it to Ashish, and Ashish was, was really became endeared to David and his men. He wanted David's men to be his chief protectors. As we had seen in chapter 28, in the first few verses, he had said to David, you're going to go out with me in a battle. And David said, okay, you'll see what your servant can do. Again, a non-committal thing. Uh, but then when he starts going into battle, remember, the Philistines had a five-city state. It was, it, it, there were five city-states. Gath, where Ashish was king, was only one of the five city-states. There were four other city-states that composed the Philistine Empire. The four other kings say to Ashish, what are you doing bringing this guy David? We remember him. Remember, after David had slain Goliath, the, the Israelites started... They, they composed a song that David, that Saul has killed his thousand, David his ten thousand. So they're quoting now to Ashish a song of Israel, saying, isn't this the song that they sing? They remember this guy. This guy was the one who had killed the great Goliath. Twenty-five, actually, actually was about, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it was about uh, twelve or thirteen years, fourteen years earlier. They still remember this song. <clears throat> they said, send him back, because he may turn against us in the battle. This way, he could win back his heart, the heart of the King Saul. Of King Saul. And Asha said, no, he's been very faithful to me these, <clears throat> these months. And he, then he corrects himself. He says, no, these years. Because it had been over a year. It had been 14 months. And interestingly enough, many times in the Bible, as soon as you touch into a year, you consider that part of the year. Just as, as soon as they touch into a day, they consider that as part of the day. 
So, many people are confused when it says that Jesus was in the grave for three days. Well, he was crucified on Friday. We know he was crucified on Friday because he was crucified on the Sabbath day. He was in the grave, therefore, on Friday, even though it was a short period of time before it became Saturday at 6 p.m. sundown. He was put in the grave. Uh, He was in the grave Friday, in the grave Saturday, and then he rose from the grave at twilight, just as Sunday was dawning. Uh, just as, even before the sun had come up, just early in the morning there, he, he, he rose from the grave. So he touched Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in the grave. Uh, so we say, no, it has to be a whole day, but we don't do that uh, uh, particularly with, with years. In fact, if I say my age, if somebody says they're, they're 20 years old, they may be 20 years old and 11 months. They may be 20 years old and 11 and a half months, but they still say, I'm 20 years old. It's when... The, turns over that they start claiming the next year. Other cultures do it a different way. If you go to Chinese culture, for example, your age is based on, on uh, uh, conception and not on birth. Isn't that right? In Chinese culture, this is what, I, what I'm told. I mean, it, it is, right? So, it's not on the day of your birth. They, you know, you're adding nine months to this thing already, which... It's probably a good way to do it. I mean, that's, I mean it's, that's not a bad way to do it. It's a different culture. So he speaks of this. But he says, no, David has defected to me. It's okay. And these other four kings don't trust David. And David's in a real predicament now. If David, think of the predicament that David is in. If David fights on behalf of the Philistines, he's fighting against Israel. So in a sense, he's fighting against God's people. I don't think David ever intended in fighting against God's people. He was going to protect Ashish. Nevertheless, David's in a real predicament. If he fights on behalf of the Philistines, he's fighting against Israel. But the other side of the predicament is, is if he does turn and start fighting on behalf of Israel, now he's fighting against God's will. Because God had in chapter 28 decreed that Saul and his three sons will die that, that next day and that Israel would flee. So in other words, Israel was to be defeated. So David was caught here. So now let's look at at verse 6 of chapter 29. Then Ashish called to David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been upright, and your going out and your coming in with me in the army are pleasing in my sight, for I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of the Lord's. Now therefore return and go in peace, that you may not displease the Lord's of the Philistines." David said to Ashish, But what have I done? And what have you found in your servant from the day when I came before you to this day, that I may not go to fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Ashish replied to David, I know that you are pleasing in the sight, in my sight like an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, You must not go with us to the battle. Now there, then arise early in the morning with the servants of your lord, that have come with you, and as soon as you have risen early in the morning and you have light, depart. So David arose early, he and his men, to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So David, David says, you know, what's going on here? How come I can't go and fight with you? And so David was caught in a predicament, thinking that if he was going to take the side of Israel during this battle, he would be fighting against God's very will. For Saul to die, Saul's three sons to die, and Israel to be defeated. If he had fought on behalf of the Philistines, he would have been fighting against his own people. 
making it very hard for him to want to, to ever go back and become king. So you see this predicament that David is in. And so somehow, God intercedes and God delivers David from this predicament. David didn't even know that God was delivering him. God delivered him by, by pulling him out of this battle totally and getting him sent back. God used four Philistine lords, four Philistine kings, to execute his will to get David out of this whole battle. God does that. God very often leads through circumstances. I'll give you another instance. Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary were sent down to Bethlehem, not by an angel saying, go to Bethlehem, because Jesus has to be born in Bethlehem. What sent Joseph and Mary down to Bethlehem? A census. So a census sends them down. So there is a decree from Caesar Augustus. There is a decree from a Roman king says everybody has to go to their hometown. So Joseph's hometown was Bethlehem. So he heads on down to Bethlehem. This was a circumstance that God used to send Joseph and Mary back to Bethlehem to make sure that the Messiah, as had been prophesied, would be born in the right place. Watchman Nee, the great servant of God, says, Never think yourself so spiritual that you do not have to be led by circumstances. Very often, God leads by circumstances. You get a job in a particular place. It wasn't exactly the place you wanted, but you get a job in a particular place. And then you find out when you're there that you meet this wonderful young lady or this young, wonderful young man who's going to be your spouse. And, and you plug into a church and there's this community and you had no idea it was going to be like this. But God has led through circumstances. God does this. God does this. God led David through circumstances. And not only led David through circumstances, but actually delivered David from sinning through a circumstance. Through four Philistine rulers sending him back. God interceded because David was in a real predicament that he didn't even know he was in. Because there was no way he could have known God's decree that was spelled out in chapter 28. Because he, and in fact, when chapter 29 is occurring, chapter 28 hadn't even yet occurred. That occurred later on that next night. So in other words, David had no idea what God was about to decree over Saul, but God delivered David from it. God does that. Let me give you an example. When I, when I came to the Lord when I was an undergraduate, uh, it was about a year and a half before I really started walking with God. I had come to the Lord, I started reading the scriptures, but I wasn't getting plugged in with a Christian group. And I had some friends that I had known on the floor Early on, even before I had become a believer on the, on the floor in college, before I had become a believer, and even that first year after I had become a believer, we had become friends. And, and uh, this one good friend of mine named Gordon, and uh, uh, so, so uh, uh, we had become good friends and we did some things together, but I would never go as far as he went. I was a believer now, he wasn't. But still, I was mixing with these people of the world. And I wasn't separated from this. And then came my second year, the same sort of thing. And, and my second year, I actually got, got quite ill. And I'll tell you a story about that either later on or next week. I, I got quite ill. But uh, in any case, at the end of my, my sophomore year, I moved into a discipleship program in, uh, that summer. 
And so I moved into a house with, about, with nine other Christian guys, and it was a discipleship program. And I really started to grow, and I started to make a new community of friends, of believers. And later on that summer, somewhere in the middle of the summer, Gordon happened to call me. And Gordon lived in Buffalo. I lived in Syracuse, right by the university, in this discipleship program for that summer. And Gordon was on his way from Buffalo through Syracuse to go to New York City to meet up with some of our other friends from college. And the things that they did in New York were, were, weren't particularly good things. Often they led to, to quite decadent things. And so Gordon said, I'm coming through Syracuse. I'm going to pick you up for the weekend. He said, I'll have you back because I was working in a lab. He said, I'll have you back before Monday morning. And I said, Gordon, I'm not sure I want to do this. He says, I'm coming through and I'm going to pick you up. And he hung up the phone and there were no cell phones. So you couldn't call people en route in those days. And, and uh, so he starts driving from Buffalo. So from Buffalo to Syracuse, it's about three hours. And I was praying about this thing and I didn't feel good at all about going down to New York City with him. And, uh, you know, I was just coming into a new community of friends. Nor did I have the heart to tell this good friend of mine, Gordon, he and I had been really quite good friends, uh, that I, I wasn't going to go with him. So I was caught in this real predicament. Would I be able to tell my friend, I'm not going to go with you? And I don't know if this has ever happened to you where you've had a community of friends that aren't believers, but they're good friends of yours. And they're asking you to do something which you know you probably shouldn't do. Has this ever happened to anybody? And, and uh, so he's driving, on, and I'm praying, God, I, I, I don't know if I can tell him. You know, maybe I just go with him, but I don't want to go. And I, I just don't want to lose him as a friend either. So anyway, you know, three hours passed, three and a half hours passed, and, and he still hadn't come. And then four hours passed, he still hadn't come. And then after about five hours, I get a phone call. Because remember, there are no cell phones. So if something happens, you have to get to a phone somewhere and have some coins and put them in the phone and call. And he says, you wouldn't believe what happened. He says, I was driving down and these two deer started running across the road. And the whole road was blocked and I was going 65 miles an hour and I plowed right into one of them. I couldn't get, <clears throat> get around both of them. And it, he said it kind of ducked down and just before he hit it and it rammed right through the radiator, pushed the radiator into the fan, chopped up the radiator, destroyed the front end of his car. And I was so delighted. <laughs> because God had spared me from having to deal with this situation. You see, God had plucked me out of this. Gordon wasn't coming. His car was, was wiped out there on the highway somewhere between Buffalo and Syracuse. And I, I wasn't confronted then with this decision that was so hard. God had spared me from this. And to this day, I believe God interceded and that was... You know, that was just a burnt offering of a, of a deer on my behalf. That was there. Later on that summer, Gordon was coming down with another car to get me, to take me to New York City. But by that time, I had been built up more in the, in, in the discipleship program. And I told him I didn't want to go. He stopped by the house. He came in. And I said, Gordon, I can't go. I'm not going to go. He says, just come on with me. Just get your stuff. I said, Gordon... I can't go. And I remember this struggle in my heart, but I was saying to him, I'm not going. And he stayed for about 20 minutes just asking me to go. You know, and I said, I'm not going, Gordon. Even, you know, grabbed me by the arm. I said, Gordon, I'm not going. 
there came a point where I had to take a stand and choose what community was I going to be in. What was I going to do what was right. But there was an instance where God interceded on my behalf where I wasn't going to be able to stand, and He used circumstances to deliver me. God does that at times. He will use circumstances to redirect us, to direct our lives into a particular place. He will use these sort of circumstances. God has the ability to do this. Zachariah, don't forget your job. Okay? I almost forgot to ask you. Okay. And, and uh, <clears throat> all right, now let's, let's look at, at chapter 30, <clears throat> reading from verse 1. Chapter 30, reading from verse 1. So now David is proceeding back to Ziklag, the, the place where all the, the, his family and the family of these 600 men were living. <clears throat> chapter 30, verse 1 of 1 Samuel. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and the two daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam the Jezreelite, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up and pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. Okay, so David and his 600 men are up with with Ashish. They're sent back. God delivers him from this predicament without his even knowing the predicament that he was in. He gets back to Ziklag. And all the families are gone. The whole city is burned with fire. Just imagine. Just imagine if you go to your parents' home. Go back to your parents' house. And it's smoldering. Just part of the frame is there. And it's just all smoldering. And you have no idea where where your parents are. You just go, oh well, I guess I'll just go back to school. I mean, this is a devastating thing. The whole city was burned. Everybody's men, everybody's families, all these men's families were gone. All the, all the women, all the children were gone. And so David gets back here, and this is now something that hits David. And you say, well, why does this happen? Isn't David a good guy? Isn't David you know, one of God's chosen people? Why does this happen? Well, God is using this instance to shake David. Remember, David, 14 months earlier, had made a decision. After God had delivered him again and again from King Saul, God had delivered him. David, in spite of that, without consulting God, without calling forth the ephod to hear from God, he made a decision to go to the land of the Philistines. He made that decision. It was a bad decision. For 14 months, it never shows any 
single instance, David calling upon God for 14 months. You feel that, you know, you've, you've gone three days without really reading the Bible. David went 14 months. And he's David. But God used something to really shake the guy. He came back. Everything was gone. His two wives were gone. And it's interesting what it says about his two wives. It says, Now David's two wives had been taken captive. At Hinoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Keeps referring to Abigail, the widow of Nabal. Won't let this thing go, because it probably was not right the way she was ultimately chosen, and we had discussed that formerly. And in fact, when David had taken Bathsheba, it only referred to Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah until David had walked in repentance for what he did, and then God turned around and started calling it his wife, calling her his wife. But in any case, here David gets back and devastation hits. Not only the devastation of having lost everything, it says, David and the people who were with him, lifted up their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. I have seen this happen to people. I have never wept to the point where I had no strength left to weep. But it is not an uncommon thing. Some people, such devastation occurs where they lose a loved one that it is so utterly devastating, they cry and cry until they have no strength left to weep. This is where it says, David and all his 600 men. And remember, these were tough guys. But they wept until there was no strength left to weep. And, and it says that in verse 6, Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. So, not only did he have to deal with this devastating loss to him personally, devastating loss to all of his men, but now many of these men, who are sometimes referred to as the sons of... Uh, 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 of uh, uh, son of Biel, the, the sons of devils in a sense. These, some of these guys were really mean guys. They said, let's just kill David. I mean, he's responsible for this. So now he's got these men looking at him, you know, sharpening their knives and <laughs> looking at him. And these are toothless, hairy men you know, looking at him. It's a scary thing. And as great a worry as, as David was, there's 600 of these guys. And they just want to take out their frustration on somebody. And finally, David is shaken to a point where it says, So David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I have no idea whether this was 30 minutes or an hour or six hours. But David came before God and began to strengthen himself in the Lord his God. If you have never learned how to strengthen yourself in the Lord your God, you are missing out so much. And it comes by taking God's Word, coming before God, praying His Word right back to Him and spending time with God and getting strengthened. David did this. He spent time with God, something that he had not done in 14 months. And what's interesting is when David is doing this, when David is strengthening himself in the Lord his God, God is not standing there saying, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, you abandoned me for 14 months? I think I'll abandon you for uh, 14 hours or something. Just let you sweat a little bit. That's what I would do. Just just make somebody sweat a little bit. But not God. God in His mercy immediately is there. That's the amazing thing. That God in His mercy is there. 
God allows David to enjoy his presence. God welcomes David in. And right after this, David then, it says in verse 7, said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech. So all this time, Abiathar the priest, never called on the priest. All this time, we've seen no indication he's ever gone. He said, bring the ephod here. He says, but he says it differently. He says, please bring me the ephod. That's in chapter 30, verse 7. If you look over in chapter 23, another instance where David had, had requested for the ephod to come. Chapter 23, verse 9, it said, Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him. So he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Do you see any difference between 23, verse 9, Bring the ephod here, and what is written in chapter, 20, in chapter 30, verse 7? Anything different in the way he, he got the ephod there? Chapter 30, verse 7, he says, Please bring me the ephod. That is actually the words that are used. If you have the New, New American Standard, it'll pull out the exact word. He says, Please bring me the ephod. In chapter 23, he says, Bring the ephod. When you have been greatly humbled, the way you even request for things changes. You don't just say, Bring me that. You say, Please bring me that. This is a man who had been broken. This is a man who had been broken. You know, the, the same attitude comes in me. It, it, it happens in me, and I see it. I can get all cocky and think that, oh, my research group is going well, this is going well, that's... There have been times when my grants have... have I've gone periods where grants didn't get renewed, and we're running out of money, and I'm, you know, going to the chair of the department, you know, trying to see how, how I can get these people paid. And my whole attitude toward everybody changes. I'm a lot nicer. And I say, please, a lot more. Because I'm not so full of myself. I realize I'm in a desperate strait. David's the same way. He says, please, bring me the effort. And the amazing thing again is, God speaks to him. God doesn't say, well, you know, forget you for a while. I'm going to watch you sweat. Don't do that. He starts speaking to David. But he used this traumatic instance in David's life to get his attention. You know, I had told you a story about how I had come to the Lord and I really wasn't getting knit in with the body of Christ. And I didn't get knit in my freshman year. I had suffered with what was diagnosed at the time, with what was diagnosed since even the time I was in high school was something called a spastic colon. I'd have tremendous pain all through my side. And, and uh, uh, so I was on all sorts of relaxers and intestinal relaxers and muscle relaxers and nothing ever seemed to help my sophomore year, again, I wasn't getting involved in the body of Christ, but I was reading the scriptures knowing I should be involved. And I wasn't getting involved. And this sickness got so bad, I didn't think I was going to survive. I, it would just be a tremendous chore to get up in the morning and go to class. And I would come back right after classes and I'd go lay down in bed and I'd go and I'd study. I, sometimes I couldn't get out of bed. I had a roommate. My roommate... Actually, that year was the one who had first shared Christ with me, and he was so kind to me. And he would say, can I bring you up some food from downstairs? And he'd help me out. And, and uh, if I'd just get to sleep, if somebody started playing loud music, it'd wake me up, and I wouldn't be able to get to sleep, and it would just exacerbate this thing. 
Well, at the end of my sophomore year, I was in terrific pain, and I was working in the lab that summer. And it was before I had moved in this discipleship house. And one young lady who had lived on my dorm floor had invited me to her church. And I had never, I had only attended church once or twice. And so I went to this church, and I thought, this is terrific. I am coming here. I'm just going to set up right here. I'm going to be a part of this. And I committed on that day, I'm going to be a part of that church. That very same week, so that was on a Sunday, that very same week, I was in the emergency room again. I was in and out of the emergency room because of this sickness. And all of a sudden, after years of having this sickness, it was properly diagnosed. It wasn't a spastic colon at all. It was congenital scarring in my ureter. So where the, where the ureter comes right out of the kidney, there was a blockage. There was scar tissue had built up in there. And so that my kidney was swelled to... Ten times its normal volume. So a typical kidney, they say, takes about 15 milliliters and then dumps it out the ureter. Mine was holding 150 milliliters before it'd be able to have enough pressure to push out. That's what all this pressure was. And so they immediately brought me in for surgery, and it was at the Upstate Medical Center there. So I, was, I would walk to the emergency room by myself. I mean, this is, I didn't have anybody there, no community. I'd walk to the emergency room, so I was, I was being brought into surgery, I had surgery, and they didn't do the, this, was it, this orthoscopic surgery back then. I have, a, I have a scar across my back that's about a foot long. And they just opened you up and, and worked on it. And so recovery time was longer. So I was in the hospital for about a week recovering from this, where they were able to get out the scar tissue and reattach the, the ureter. And, and, and so the kidney was saved, and, and, and I never had any trouble with it after that. I had made a decision to go and get involved in the body press. I never had trouble after that. So I missed that one Sunday because I was in the hospital, but the very next Sunday I was back in church and I joined a discipleship program and a community set up for me and fellowship set up for me. I don't know what God brings in other people's lives, but I know what He did in my life to get my attention. He did something to get my attention. And as soon as he got my attention, I was delivered from this. I had suffered with this pain even before I was a believer, but it had really gotten bad my sophomore year. And uh, God used this pain. And, I, and, and there's this portion, in, uh, uh, and this is actually the first scripture that I ever memorized, was right after this event. And this is in, in Proverbs. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 3. The first scripture I ever memorized was not John 3.16. For me, it was Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. God really disciplined me, really disciplined me, and I am so glad he did. God really disciplined David. He lost everything. And I'm sure that David is glad he did because this was like a slap across David's face. Like, wake up! You're living in the land of the Philistines even willing to fight with the Philistines. Wake up! What are you doing? God patiently waited 14 months and then finally allowed this devastation to come in David's life. God waited patiently for me to cut off old relationships and get involved in the body of Christ. And finally, when I could survive no longer, I committed, I said, I'm getting committed to the body of Christ. 
No more need for the kidney problem. No more need. That very same week, it was done. And I've never had any trouble since. Never had any trouble with it. God was gracious. God allows things in our lives, thankfully, to draw us back to get our attention. God does this sort of thing. And praise be to God that He does it. Praise be to God. Because it is our weakness that makes us strong. So, so many times we say, well, why do I struggle with this thing? Why do I... Because God is taking the very weakness that you have and bringing strength through with this. The very weakness. It says God has taken the weak things of the world and the despised. God has taken the things that are not that He might nullify the things that are. So when you struggle with your weaknesses, when you struggle with this sort of thing, the weaknesses that can come in your life, I want you to remember this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Now reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God, but, but by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And the Bible says, Paul says, I would much rather glory in my weakness than in my strength. I am thankful for what God did for me in that very instance. God will do the same for you at some point. You will see to bring you back around deeper into fellowship with Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the truth of the Gospel, the Gospel message that You have given to us. Father, I thank You for these young people, and I pray, Lord, that as they go through struggles in their lives and times of weakness, that they would see that it is their weakness, through their weakness, You give them strength. Father, I pray that in the name of Jesus you would cause them to follow your ways, that they wouldn't have to go through tremendous trials to draw them back to you. But if they should so stray, that you would deliver them through the depths of those trials. Father, have mercy on their souls, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.